Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So we are going back into our series through the book of Ephesians, and this is our third week in Ephesians. Um, here at Southside, this is, I'm trying to think, this is our third or fourth time where we've taken a large chunk of Scripture, and that's our normal mode of preaching here. It's what you guys have heard it before, but it's what we call a slow stroll through a book in the Bible. Um, and this is our third week in Ephesians. And I know Greg talked the first week that if we went one word at a time, it would take 42 years. But we are still in chapter 1, verse 5, okay? And last week, Greg took this chunk, 3 through 6, and talked about being holy and blameless. And this week, I am going to kind of dive into another principle that Paul teaches us, and it's the idea of biblical adoption, Unlike the other letters that Paul wrote, he did not, Paul did not write the book of Ephesians as a response to a crisis or as a way to rebuke someone. Um, most of his other 13 letters he was writing in response to something that was going wrong or to, to the leaders that they needed to change some things. But he actually didn't write Ephesians to rebuke or to correct anyone. He wrote Ephesians for another reason. And the reason that Paul wrote Ephesians, the reason that he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus was so that the Christians, right? So it's very important to know that he wrote this letter to Christians. He wrote it so that the Christians would have a deeper understanding of their salvation. And he saw that if, if by the Spirit, you could grasp some difficult truths about your salvation, it would lead you to a more joyful and worshipful life. And so this was the reason that he wrote Ephesians. It was because he saw that there was a big difference between Christians who were alive and who were grasping the truth about God and stagnant Christianity. And he wanted the Ephesians and all the Christians surrounding to be alive in Christ. And that's why he, he writes about being alive in Christ. He wanted us to be alive in Christ. He was writing this letter to mitigate uh, stagnant Christianity. Anything that's stagnant is on its way to decay. There's a phenomenon called uh, air stagnation. When air is stagnant over an area, it releases pollutants. And it actually begins to kill all the area around it. And it becomes really dangerous for humans if you're in air stagnation. When, when iron is stagnant and it's unused, it rusts. When water is stagnant, it loses its purity and you can't drink it anymore. When a cell in your body, this is something I learned, and I told, uh, I told Mr. Curry over there I wouldn't talk about a movie, but I learned this in a movie, okay? When a cell in your body becomes stagnant, the other cells don't come around it and build it up. Actually, what happens is that cell begins to kill other cells around it. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in stagnation. Stagnation kills. And so he was encouraging the Ephesians to be alive. 
Praise God for what he has done. Live a life of joy and of worship. Take heart in the glorious truth surrounding your salvation. Don't be stagnant anymore. Take what I'm teaching you and let it stir your affections to prayers. Another amazing thing about Ephesians is that over half of the book, over half of the book is prayer. Ephesians 1, 3 through 23 are two different prayers. Over half of the, Ephesian, of the book of the Ephesians is prayer. And verses 3 through 14 is a prayer of praise. And so what Paul is doing here is he's praising God for some really, really difficult truths. There are spiritual landmines in this passage. Right? First one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Spiritual landmine. Right? The one that I get to talk about this morning He predestined us for adoption. Spiritual landmine, right? But it's important for us to know this morning that when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, when he wrote this prayer, he wasn't writing it to spark debate by any means. He thought that if by the Spirit you could understand just a little bit more what this means for you as a Christian, it would lead you to a deeper praise of God. And that was his intention. I don't think Paul would be very happy with the debates that have been going on for years, and that will go on until Jesus returns. That was never his intention to write about these difficult truths. He wrote about them so that by the Spirit, if you could understand them, your life would be better because your praise would be better. He wanted to teach the Ephesians what God had done. He thought that if you could understand this, your prayer, your prayer and your praise would be effective. So let's see what Paul prays. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's what Paul's saying. In Christ, if you have Christ, and this is how Paul describes Christians, especially in the book of Ephesians. If you are a Christian, you are called in Christ. You are living a life that is through Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have spiritual blessings. And spiritual blessing can be a really abstract phrase. It can be confusing because... Any, like, can anything be a spiritual blessing? Like, I was driving down the road, and the wind blew a little awkwardly, and the leaves, like, it's like frozen too, and the leaves started going like this, and then, like, you get a sign. Is that a spiritual blessing? You know, are you uh, in your room by yourself, and then something crazy happens that you can't explain? Is that a spiritual blessing? It's abstract. It's confusing. In context, it's, it's a really amazing thing. What constitutes a spiritual blessing? A spiritual blessing is not a superpower that you get for being a Christian. And it's also super important to understand that a spiritual blessing is not reserved for super-Christians. Not reserved for super-Christians. What are spiritual blessings? And I think this is in your notes. Yes, it is. A spiritual blessing is the baseline benefit that every Christian has 
by having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when Paul is writing that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, what he's saying is, if you are a believer, you have the spiritual blessings. You, don't, you can't give them back. They are yours. They are baseline benefits that you get with faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you have them whether you know it or not. And Paul's purpose to write about the spiritual blessings was to remind some, but also to teach others, and that would be for us, to teach us that if you have Christ, you have these blessings. And if you have these blessings, you didn't earn them and you didn't work for them, but they were given to you by God as a gift in faith in Christ. Now this is super important because that it implies that whether, wherever you stand on the pendulum of these tough spiritual doctrines, these tough spiritual blessings, wherever you are on that, if you take it at face value, if you are a Christian, you have the spiritual blessings. You have them. They're yours. No matter what. God has pronounced these good things for your benefit in Christ, and you can't give them back. In verses 3-14, through 14, there are at least eight Eight things that Paul describes as spiritual blessings. At least eight baseline, baseline benefits that you get for being a Christian. And I'll walk through them very, very quickly, and we're going to just hone in on one. Okay? You've been chosen. That's a spiritual blessing. You've been adopted. You've been accepted. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been given spiritual wisdom and insight. You've been given an inheritance. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have these spiritual blessings no matter what. No matter what, that is your status with God. And Paul wrote this prayer to show you that when you are reminded of your spiritual blessings, what's supposed to happen, it's not supposed to spark debate. It's actually supposed to stir you to praise. It's supposed to stir you to praise. And so this morning, I'm going to focus and hone in on just one spiritual blessing. The spiritual blessing of biblical adoption. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The spiritual blessing of biblical adoption. Let's define it. Biblical adoption defined according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. It is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So if, it is that if you are in Christ, you have been given all the benefits of being a son of God and you have been brought into the family. You have been brought into the family and you have been given all the benefits of being a child of God. That, that's what it means to be biblically adopted by God. You have been brought into the family and you have the benefits of being a child. And we could go on and on for this doctrine because the implications, I mean, I'm sure if we just did a survey and we said, okay, what are the implications of this we would be here for a really long time because it is a pretty deep 
a deep understanding of what's going on here. But I just want to focus in on two aspects of adoption that I think it's going to help us a little bit this morning, okay? Um, I want to talk about the motivation for adoption, why we were adopted, and then I want to talk about the benefits of our adoption. So first, the motivation. Why did God adopt you? Verse 5 says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. The motivation for God to adopt you is love. The reason that he adopted you was love. And, right, there's another landmine right in the middle of the sentence, in love, he predestined, and that's tough. And I know that we're going to talk about it, we're going to cover it at another time. And there's a lot of questions and debates around that word. It's, it is a landmine for a reason, and we're going to touch on it, okay? But also for this morning, I don't want to ignore it either, because that word is super important for what's happening here, for our praise. What, what does he mean by that? Do you know why Paul praised God this way? Do you know why Paul was thankful and worshiped God? Because he knew that this was true about him, that in love he was predestined for adoption. The reason that Paul praised God for this, and the reason that we can praise God for this, was that he wanted us to know that long before you set your heart on God, God already set his heart on you. Long before you set your heart on God, he already set his heart on you. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved. Long before you could even fathom the love of God, before you could conjure up the idea of what loving God is, God already loved you. The only reason that you can love in the first place is because you've already been loved. It's one of the best Bible verses I learned as a kid. Right? That's something that I got taught when I was six years old. We love because we were first loved. It's supposed to motivate you to love other people when you know that you were loved first. I love because I was already loved. And it's kind of difficult to understand that God would love you far before you loved him. But as many of you know, I'm an expecting dad, which is terrifying and also amazing. And so I have just a smaller, just a tiny glimpse of what this kind of means. Because Melissa and I loved our kid before we knew she was pregnant. We prayed about having a kid and what that would mean. And we thought it was 10 years down the road. But we had already thought about kid names. We had already started stripping the wallpaper in our extra room for a nursery. We were prepared to love a child that we didn't even know was there. And then when we found out she was pregnant, we love our child. We're parents, no matter what. And we love our kid, even though our kid can't love us right now. And they don't even know us right now. But it doesn't change the love that we have for our kid. Nothing can change our love for our child, even though our child might not know us. Paul wants you to know that, that that is like a minuscule idea of how much and how early God loves you. Minuscule. Because according to the scripture here, he loved you far earlier than you loved him. Not just seconds. 
far earlier. Verse 4 says this, Before the foundation of the world was laid. That's a big statement. It's pretty all-encompassing. If you are in Christ, the greatest spiritual blessing of adoption is that there was never a time that existed that God's love was not set on you to be adopted. That's difficult. But that's what Paul's saying here, that there has never been a time, ever, where God's love was not set on you to be adopted. Before John Beaver, William Henry, and Joseph Larwell settled in Worcester in 1808, God's love was set on you to be adopted. Before Benjamin Franklin got zapped by a bolt of lightning and discovered electricity in the 1700s, God's love was set on you to be adopted. Before the Ottoman Empire ruled Southeast Asia, God's love was set on you to be adopted. Before the Romans built the Colosseum and fed people to lions, God's love was set on you to be adopted. Before the pyramids were built in 2500 BC, God's love was set on you to be adopted. Before Noah took his, his family and animals two by two to preserve the world from the flood, God's love was set on you to be adopted. And before Adam and Eve enjoyed the garden, God's love was set on you to be adopted. It goes deeper than that. Before space, before the solar system existed, before the before, God's love was set on you to be adopted. There was never any space in which God's love was not set on you to be adopted if you are in Christ. He is the initiator. And he initiated your adoption out of love. And so the first week we learned that Paul's letter is a relational letter. It's not cold doctrine. It's a relational letter. God's motivation towards your spiritual adoption is love. Because not only is the letter relational, but the doctrine is relational too. Now in the theological world, the word for salvation that a lot of people use is this word justification. And justification speaks of the legal terms of your salvation. Right? Kind of, it's just paper. What is it? What does the law say about your status with God? Justification is a legal love. It's the legal terms. It's that God pronounces, God pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of their faith in Christ. God cancels your debt through Jesus. It's transactional justification. The blood of Christ has paid your debt. The paperwork is in, the I's have been dotted, the T's have been crossed. By law, you are a child. That's justification. Now, justification alone is cold and it's distant. It's, it, it is very much a transactional thing. And if justification was all that there was, then you would probably find yourself kind of using it as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Right? If I do this, if I say this, God's going to cancel my debt and he's going to save me from eternity without him. Perfect. Did it. I'm good. That's all I need to do. Justification is an amazing, it's an amazing doctrine, but alone it's cold. It's cold. It's transactional. 
It's because salvation with delight is like cake without the icing. Right? My wife is a pastry chef, and she makes amazing dessert, amazing dessert. But everything that she makes that's good, it's because the icing is what sets it apart. Because cake without, if you eat cake without icing, I think that's like insanity. <laughs> cake is just the, the, the car, the boat for the icing, right? That's the point of having, the point of having cake is so that you can eat something truly delightful and not feel terrible about yourself. <laughs> Dry, uniced cake is still cake, but it's not that good. And being saved without delight in the one who saves you is still salvation, but it's not that great. It's dry. And that's where the doctrine of adoption is meant to illuminate your soul to praise. If you are in Christ, you're not just saved, and you are saved, but you're not just saved, you're a child. Justification is the legal love. It's amazing, but it's incomplete. Adoption, adoption is the relational love. So this year I had the privilege, one of the greatest privileges of my life. I was standing on a boom lift painting Wayne Savings Bank, and I got called, a call from the Worcester High School about considering to take the girls' basketball job to be their varsity head coach. And through conversation and prayer and talking to my wife, I went for it. And in July, I was hired as the coach. I went in, and I signed the papers, and I, you know, did my W-4, whatever you have to do. And at that moment, when the board approved me, I was the head coach of the girls' basketball team. Nothing could have changed that at that moment. I was technically, legally their coach. In the first couple weeks and months of, of open gyms and conversations were awkward because we didn't really know each other that much. I was just the coach, and they were the players. And that's what our relationship was. Coach, player, transactional, I'm going to teach you, you're going to learn the game, that's it, right? But when love was introduced into the mix on our team, the relationships went from coach to player, from transactional to familial. We went from coaches and players to family. And it was only love that could change that. And by the end of the year, we had girls crying because the season was over. They didn't want to not come to practice anymore. And we were okay. We went one game over 500. But the love that we shared with those girls was insurmountable to the basketball that could have been played. In legal terms... Legal terms, the blood of Christ pays your debt. But legal relationships don't produce anything that can change you. It's love that moves people from acquaintances to delight. And in relational terms, the blood of Christ seals you as a son or a daughter of the Father. John Dagg, speaking of this relationship between justification and adoption, says this, A judge can acquit you, but it takes a father to adopt you. And the best thing, the best thing about your adoption is that the judge looks at you and pronounces your slate is clean and then he gets out from behind the bench and he takes you home with him. The motivation, the power, and the completion of your adoption is love. You have a father because he loves you. 
And that spiritual blessing of adoption is yours no matter what. You can't give it back. If you are a believer this morning, it's only because you were adopted. There's not one Christian who's ever lived who was not adopted by the Father. And it was the love that motivated him to adopt you before there was ever a before. The motivation is love. You have a father who acquits you of your sin but then takes you home. Now I'm going to finish here with the benefits of adoption. The benefits of your adoption. What do you get for being adopted? It's an inheritance. When you were adopted on Christ's merits, you are given a righteous status. That's your legal standing. But it's not all that you have, right? We just talked about that. You are also given all the things that the Father promises to his heir. Back to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now that's kind of like, what does that mean, right? So we have some ladies in here. So that would kind of, well, what does that mean? Am I a son or what? Let's look at the Greek for just a second. Adoption as sons, it's one phrase, and it's in your notes, and it's the word huiothesia. And I practiced that in front of the mirror for like 10 minutes to make sure I said it right. <laughs> but it's huiothesia. And huiothesia is one phrase, and the phrase means adoption as sons. And when you read the Greek, adoption as sons, what it is, is it's speaking of being placed in a position of a son or daughter who now possesses the same rights as the parent's natural children. See, in the Old Testament, if you were the firstborn, you were able to get all of the inheritance. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob tricked him and got his inheritance, right? As a firstborn, you got the inheritance, But Jesus completely reshifted what it means to be an heir of God. When you see adopted as sons, it's not as though you become a man if you're a woman. It's that all Christians, male and female, are now treated as the firstborn. Every single one of you. You are all lifted up to the same rank. Firstborn child of God. An heir to the inheritance. And when you were adopted, you immediately became what the Bible calls a co-heir with Christ. You are on His level when it comes to inheritance. Every believer has been given the same status. Co-heir. And as a co-heir, you receive the full benefit of Jesus as well. And in heaven, one of the things you receive as being an adopted child is that you get a glorified body. You get your glorified body in heaven. But I would guess for us, and probably for me, what's the question is, well, what, what does that mean for me right now, right? Your earthly inheritance that you get from being raised to the position of firstborn is that you get an inheritance of God. There's a lot of things that you get with that. 
a lot of things, but to summarize, I just want to say this. Your earthly inheritance is that wherever God is, you get to be there. Wherever God is, you get to be there. And the best inheritance that you get by being adopted by God is that you get a father. And I've talked about this before. You get his compassion. You get God's compassion, but you also get the God of compassion. And you get his comfort, but you also get the God of all comfort. And you get his love. He loves you, but you also get the God of all love. The inheritance, the best inheritance of your adoption is a father that was motivated by love. And you get him. Wherever he goes, you get the father. That means full access. Wherever you're at in your walk, if you got saved yesterday, you are immediately raised to firstborn with the inheritance to full access to God. If you feel like you are stuck and just in a rut in sin and you can't get out of it and you don't know where to go and you're just destroyed by that, it's great news that you are elevated to the firstborn and your inheritance is full access to God. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, if you've been a Christian since you were six, or you've been a Christian right starting when you were 60, doesn't matter. It's the same. You are elevated to firstborn, co-heir with Christ, a son or a daughter of the Father. The best inheritance that you can have. And Paul wrote it so that if by the Spirit that you could understand it just a little bit, it's meant to lead you to praise. Thank you, God, for doing that for me. I'm going to pray and the music team can come on up. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.